Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you give us instruction from your word that is helpful and important, especially at the beginning of the year. We need to be reminded of certain things that are so fundamental to our relationship with you that if we neglect them, we will drift. Prayer is one of those things. Lord, we do not want prayer to be the most talked about, least practiced discipline at College Park Church. We do not want to be a church full of programs and people, um, exciting things that are taking place. 2009 looks like a year full of optimism and hope, and yet it could all be about us. And we want instead to begin this year with a single confession And that is that you are worthy to be sought. And that is the motivation that forms the basis of our praying. That you are worthy and also that we are needy. So God, would you remind us today of both your worth and our need and help us to see the all-encompassing nature of what prayer is supposed to be. And I pray that you would raise up an army of people who would say, this year, 2009, must be a year of deep, intimate, personal, and heartfelt prayer. So God, make us, I pray, a praying church. A praying church. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As I prayed earlier, prayer is often called the most talked about and least practiced discipline in the church. I don't need to convince you that you ought to pray. That's not the problem. The problem is that many of us have very weak, impotent prayer lives. And this morning what I want to suggest to you is that prayer is supposed to be the air that Christian soldiers breathe supposed to be the environment in which we operate our lives. In fact, I want to give you a test. Do you know the um, armor of God? I wonder if you could name them. Ready? Don't look at your Bibles. Give you a test. And you have to say it loud. That way, if you get it wrong, everybody knows. Ready? Belt of? Louder. Breastplate of? Good. Shoes of the gospel of? Good. Shield of? Faith. Helmet of? Salvation. Sword of the? Spirit. Dagger of? Oh, you don't, oh, I don't know that one. Okay. Oh, no! Sword of the Spirit. You know what's interesting about that list? What's interesting about that list is um, it doesn't include verse 18. In fact, one of the things about verse 18, and that's our primary verse, is that the very nature of it is supposed to go back and sort of be the salt, the flavor, the environment that all of the spiritual armaments are to be used in. Part of the problem, though, is a hard word to translate. Let me show you this. The NIV renders it this way, which is the Word of God, period, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. NASB does the same thing, puts a period after verse 17. RSV does the same thing, period. But now look at what the New King James does. It says, which is the word of God, semicolon, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And then look at what ESV does, which is the word of God, comma, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So there's a problem here. And the challenge is, is that the phrase praying in the Spirit is a participial phrase, and the question is, how is it connected to the previous verse? Three translations put a period there indicating that it's a new thought or a complete sentence on its own. One translation puts a semicolon indicating that while it's an independent thought, it is directly connected to the previous verse. And another translation puts a comma helping us to understand that, no, this is a verse that describes how all these other things are to be done. I think ESV has it right. Meaning that prayer is supposed to be the environment in which we use the armor of God. That the text says... 
take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So I was going to have some sort of flannel graph up here to show you these different armaments that you could use, but the reason I decided not to is that I can't find any uh, flannel graph that has prayer included in the spiritual armor. And verse 18 was designed to be a part of the weaponry and the environment that God has given us to be able to wage spiritual battles. Now the reason that that's important is that prayer is supposed to be the atmosphere in which we wage our warfare. It's not like an additional weapon like the sword or the the shield or the uh, helmet is, but rather prayer is supposed to be this, this weapon that is the environment that we're in. Meaning it is the way in which we are to conduct ourselves. It's the way that we're to take up the the shield of faith. It's the way that we're to wield the sword of the Spirit. That it's the air that Christian soldiers breathe. Now why is that important as we roll into 2009? The reason it's important is for two reasons. First, it's important because 2009 could be filled with some really unique opportunities for you. 2009 can be filled with some really unique opportunities for College Park Church. In the midst of those opportunities, we need to be sure that as God brings those things across our path, that we know how to process them. Because the enemy tempts us not only with bad things, but with good things. But sometimes the best is taking place at the service of things that are good. And so 2009 needs to be a year where we learn how to make prayer like the oxygen for our souls so we can discern what the Lord wants us to do. But it also means that 2009 for some of us could be a very difficult year with trials and tribulations and difficulties that are out there that are just waiting for you. And 2009 may be a year that you're going to need to learn how to pray with new desperation because God's going to give some hard providence in your life. See, prayer... It's supposed to be the environment in which we operate. It's how we soar when great winds of opportunity come, and it's also how we wage our warfare when things are difficult. This morning from Ephesians 6, I want to call you today to have a lifestyle that is saturated by spirit-controlled, persevering prayer. A lifestyle, an environment, a a deep commitment, not an on-again, off-again, not a one-time and then another time, but a, a lifestyle where prayer saturates your life, that you have individual prayer time, and you have prayer time maybe with your family or prayer time with a group of friends. But the more important thing is that prayer becomes this thing that is just all a part of your life in, in every element and in every decision that you're making, that prayer is this environment in which you operate. Ephesians 6.18 is set in the context of what it means for these believers to be strong in the Lord. It's Paul's final word in Ephesians. Classic Paul style, he's spent the first three chapters of Ephesians identifying some great doctrinal truths for them. There's some incredible stuff in the book of Ephesians. And then in chapter 4, he talks with them about how they are to walk and how they are to specifically conduct themselves, and then in chapter 5, he begins to draw the the focus even tighter. Look at chapter 5 and verse 1. After this great doctrinal material, and telling them there to walk, chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God as beloved children. And then verse 18 of chapter 5, it says, And do not get drunk with wine. For that is debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. If you go on, you'd see he then talks to wives, and then to husbands, and to children, and fathers, and bondservants, and masters. So the flow of thought is this. we got doctrinal truths. How shall we then walk? Now, be imitators of God. Be filled with the Spirit. And here's how this should apply in in the lives of wives, husbands, children, fathers, etc., He draws the conclusion then in chapter 6 and verse 10, and that's where our text begins. 
That's why the word finally is so important. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. So this is really important. Because after all of this doctrinal information, all of this material on needing to walk, wives, husbands, children's fathers, he then draws it to a conclusion by saying, finally, here's how you're to do it. Here's the last word I'm going to say. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Why is that so important? It's important because there are, there's this mentality that we can get into that knowing the right truths, understanding the right information, being able to recite Correct information somehow means that we're growing spiritually. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. Rather, spiritual progress is measured by dependence upon Christ. So there's two things I want you to see. First is this. Spiritual maturity is marked by more dependence, not less. My prayer for us as a church is that as we roll into 2010, that one of the characteristics of us will be that we are more dependent, not less. And I want to remind you that the time that it is dangerous, when dependence can be lost, is when things are going well. When God seems to be blessing. When new opportunities come. I don't know about you, but I find this in my own life, that when things are going difficult and hard, I, it's easy for me to know that I'm dependent. It's easy for me to be reminded that I have need. In fact, I think in my own life, it is far more dangerous for blessings to come my direction because that's where the real warfare of dependency lies. And spiritual maturity is marked by more dependence, not less. And that's why Paul says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. So one of the things I'm praying for us as a church for this entire year is, Lord, help us to be dependent on You and on Your strength, not on ours. Because we can have all the programs, all of the right people, all the right personnel, all the right stuff of ministry, but hear me, if the Lord doesn't bless it or add His power, it's pointless. And I'm against pointless church. I don't like pointless church. It's not worth my time or your time. You can have all the right exegesis, all the right sermon structure, all the right stuff in the message, but if God doesn't blow upon it by His Spirit, it will fall to the ground and have no effect. The problem with this idea of dependency is it's directly opposite of how we think in life about growth and maturity. As kids get older they become more independent, and we celebrate it, right? I mean, I'm thrilled that my kids are becoming more independent. Our twins can make chocolate chip cookies on their own. And I love that. I have dreams of sitting in a chair going, chocolate chip cookies, right? <laughs> it's just beautiful. They can go up and do chocolate chip cookies, and, and Savannah becoming more independent. You know, she's got this little sleeper thing that she wears it's got a zipper that goes up the leg like this that little zipper is an idol of her heart she thinks it's like a status symbol to be able to zip it up herself and i'll grab that zipper and she's like no dad no dad i do it i do it i do it and she'll zip it up and she go look what i did and there's a part of me that wants to go nobody cares savannah Ooh, get your zipper right so there's there's this independency thing that's a part of the fabric of who we are it's also why in high school, you know, when you wanted to be really cruel, you'd throw, oh yeah, your mom jokes in, right? Like this. Hey, that's a nice shirt. Who picked that out for you? Your mom, right? Or in basketball, you know, hey, that's a nice move. Who taught you that? Your mom. Why is that a cut? Because there's a sense that as you grow older, independency is the characteristic of your life. It's exactly opposite of that when it comes to your spiritual life. The text says, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Meaning, that the more you know about the Bible, the more you know about theology, the more you know about church, the more dependent you should be, not more independent. Dallas Willard in his book, Transformation of the Heart, says this, it is the godly who consume the most grace. Grace to them, he says, is like breath. 
the more you know about who Jesus is, the more you know you need grace, the more you know you need help. And how does this connect to prayer? It connects because there is no clearer statement of your dependency on God than your commitment to prayer. The heartbeat of dependency is measured by your commitment to prayer. Or as one of my friends says it this way, prayerlessness is my declaration of independency from God. Prayerlessness is my declaration of independency from God. I want you to learn more about the Bible in 2009. I want you to learn more about theology in 2009. I want you to understand what the Bible says. I want you to take notes and learn and grow. But I don't want that to become your trust. I don't want that to create more independency. Oh, I know what to do. I know what to do. I know what to do. I I know what to do statements are killing the hearts of some of us. Dependency is the mark of spiritual maturity. The second thing that's important about this text is this. That we need to understand that spiritual battles are won by trust and reliance, not by willpower and ingenuity. Some of us are too smart and too disciplined. The reality is, trust and reliance is the key. Look at what verse 12 says. Verse 12 indicates that our struggle in life is not against flesh and blood. But it's against, notice, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heaven in the heavenly places. Now, that little phrase, over this present darkness, remember the book Frank Peretti wrote? It was like when I was in high school, um, This Present Darkness. And, and it was an interesting book, rather controversial, because it, it took this whole perspective of demonic activity, and it probably was a bit of an overcorrection, because... I knew that after I read that book, I was looking around for you know the demons that lived in the poinsettias and, and around the corner, and you know someone who stole my parking spot, he's demon possessed. I mean, I just had all this. This it probably was overkill, but it was helpful to remind me, and I think Christianity in general, that our struggle is not just with people. That behind the veil of what we see in life is a real spiritual battle. You need to understand that when you come on Sunday mornings, I trust that you come with a prayerful perspective because we are in a war and this is the front line. Right now, right right now what is happening is the front lines of the battle between darkness and light, between the, the rule of Christ and the rule of Satan. And there are people in this very room and this moment who have a war happening within their soul. And this text says, you don't see the battle clearly. It's a spiritual battle. And our battles are won not by willpower and ingenuity. So if you want a mantra for 2009, maybe it would be this. You can't do it. You can't. You can't do it. Yeah, Jesus can. But trust and reliance, that's the essence of how spiritual battle is are, are both won and how they are waged. The other thing is that every bit of this spiritual armament that we've been, we've been given is spiritual. Notice it's the belt of truth. It's the breastplate of righteousness. It's the gospel of peace. It's the shield of faith. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's not the belt of knowledge. It's not the breastplate of achievement. It's not the shoes of likability or the shield of creativity or the sword of willpower. Everything about the armaments is intensely spiritual And our ability to embrace them and use them is directly related to our understanding and embracing of what it means to trust and rely. The beauty of the armor and its connection to prayer is that it creates utter dependency upon God. So independency is the death of prayer and independency is the defeat of spiritual warfare. So listen, the thing that we have to battle more than anything else when it comes to prayer is not knowing prayer is important. That's not the issue. Everyone here knows prayer is important. The battle is thinking that we can make it on our own. That we've got enough intellect and and insight and wisdom and understanding that we can just kind of live life in this drumbeat pattern of acting as though God isn't 
full of resources to give us everything that we need for life and godliness. It's the difference between having a perspective where you're in charge or saying, Lord, I don't know what to do and I need you by your spirit to blow and to help me. I need you to give me wisdom and guidance. I need you to... It's a perspective of humility, of understanding that God resists the proud. Man, there's a, there's a text for you. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. It means that we decide that we're done with our independent living and say, Lord, instead I want to hoist the sails of a prayer time and say, I need you to help me. I need you to... Unless you do this, it's not going to work. Daniel Henderson wrote a book called Fresh Encounters about prayer ministry in the life of a church and he drew a comparison that's helpful between the tragedy of a speedboat mentality and the beauty of a sailboat mentality. Listen to what he says. In my high school years, I lived on a lake and during those years, I enjoyed many days of boating and skiing. I loved to take our old outboard and speed across the lake with the wind in my face blowing my hair. Perhaps that is why one day my heart was gripped when I flew from California to Pennsylvania to speak at a pastor's conference. I will never forget being in that crowded airplane, looking out the window with tears streaming down my face. I had just finished reading a book on leadership and was reflecting honestly about my journey in ministry. I confessed, Lord, for so many years I've wanted to be a powerboat for you. As a pastor, I've kept my hand on the throttle of a man-made machine Enjoying the exhilaration of impressive speed, I've sliced through choppy waters of church life, impressing people with my dynamic ability to navigate and steer. Pause. That's why some of you really successful men have really small hearts. Because you can conquer the world financially. You can turn any kind of deal you can imagine. You can figure out anything, and you're loaded financially, but the reality is your heart is this Little. Why? Because life for you is about you and you making it. And that doesn't work when it comes to your heart. I continued, he writes, with a broken heart. Lord, give me the grace to learn to be simply a sailboat. Let this attitude be true of my heart. Let me set my sails every day through prayer and the word and wait for the wind of your spirit to blow. I learned that a powerboat is impressive. But its mark of distinction is human creativity and effort. A simple sailboat is average and only able to move by an unseen supernatural force. A powerboat advances on a predictable journey at the hands of a driver propelled by man-made fuel. A sailboat is at the mercy of an unpredictable force and magnifies the beauty and energy of the wind. Oh, to be a church and to be people whose characteristic is that they magnify the beauty and energy of the Spirit of the living God. For people to be able to say of us and for you to know that it's true about your own heart and life that I didn't do this, Jesus did it through me. And prayer is the means by which we connect our heart to the reality of what it means for us to trust and rely upon Him. So Paul's final word is, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Not to be strong in ourselves. So what does it mean to pray at all times? Verse 18, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. What does that mean? How does a Christian soldier breathe prayer? Essentially, it means that we embrace this. A lifestyle saturated by Spirit-controlled, persevering prayer. It means that every part of your life is just saturated by this fundamental commitment that you can't make it on your own. You can't do marriage and parenting. You can't do money or finances. You you can't do anything. You need God's help. That's how you came to Christ. And you live that way for the rest of your life. And prayer is connected to that. And here's the problem. If you stop praying or begin to remove yourself from a, a vibrant prayer life, what will end up happening is you will begin to believe you can do it on your own. And you'll be satisfied with you. You'll be satisfied with with your own ability and, and with your, your own uh, sense of... of 
way in which you're going to figure it out. And Paul calls us here to a lifestyle. Notice how many times the word all is used in the passage. Verse 18, it's used four times. It says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. He wants prayer to saturate their life. The word saturate means that it, it becomes a part of the fabric of who you are. It's, just, it's, like, it's like you're breathing. You, you, you don't even realize that you're doing it, but it becomes a part of your life. A few years ago, somebody gave me a recipe for some homemade salsa that I really loved. And um, they, on the, the recipe list indicated that you're supposed to put a certain number of jalapenos in the uh, salsa, which is great because I like a little spicy salsa. What they didn't tell me is that when you chop jalapenos, you need to wear gloves. Well, the problem was is that I didn't realize this. And then after I got done chopping these jalapenos, I had an itch on my finger, and so I went like this, and I was like, oh, wow, that's hot. And then my eyes started to water, so I rubbed my eyes, right? Well, that didn't work well, right? And then what I found out is that your fingernails can be saturated with jalapeno juice for a long time. So I'd be, you know, working on a sermon or something, and I'd be like, ah! Anytime my fingers were saturated with this jalapeno juice. And the idea is that your life is so saturated with prayer that every part of your life is just inculcated with the sense that you need God's help. A lifestyle that's saturated. He says praying at all times in the Spirit. The idea is that every part of your life is saturated with this understanding that you can't make it on your own. Notice the two words that he uses. Prayer and supplication. The distinction between the two is that... Prayer is more of a general conversation and supplication is more like requests. So the idea is that I'm in a regular communion with God. I'm in a regular conversation with Him. And then I also have certain seasons when I'm specifically talking to Him about the needs of my life. So what Paul is calling for here is for all sorts of praying, both prayer and supplication, and calling for a lot of them. If you think of the life of Jesus, you'll see this play out in his life, that often in the New Testament he's slipping away for times of intimacy with the Lord, quiet times just to pray. You see it in the early church, like in Acts 2, verse 42, where the disciples are continually giving themselves to prayer. You could also see it in Romans 12, where Paul, verse 12, urges the church to give themselves to prayer. The point is, is that in the, in the drumbeat of life, that prayer is supposed to be the solution, because after all, God is the solution to their needs and their problems. In fact, look at um, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. Where Paul gets very personal and practical in this particular text and gives us a solution for what we're to do when difficulties come and when anxieties come or when we're tempted to worry. says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So there it is. Don't be anxious about anything. Anything. And in everything, he says, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So does anybody else struggle with worry in this room? Okay. Anyone else embarrassed to put their hand up nice and high? All right. When I worry or am burdened about something, the first person I want to talk with is my wife. And one time I was studying this passage and I realized that as wonderful as it is to talk to my wife, it's pretty easy for me to rather talk with her than God. The text says, be anxious for nothing, but instead in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Meaning that when things come into my life, the first inclination, the knee-jerk reaction, the, the automatic response of my heart ought to be, all right, Lord, what do I do about this? But I've got this constant communication with the Father. And then notice the promise in verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
Listen, better than a book, better than a friend, better than a seminar, better than more information, some of you just simply need to take a prayer walk and talk with God about what's going on in your soul, and that's when the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. Maybe the answer to your problem isn't figuring it out. Maybe you can't put it on a spreadsheet. Maybe you can't work out the numbers. Maybe you can't put it on a legal plan. Maybe that's the point. Maybe the point is there's no earthly way for you to figure it out because God has put that in your life to get you on your knees to say, Hello, I can help you. You see, as a lifestyle, prayer is supposed to be this thing where we are constantly tapping into Him. That's why we have the armor. And prayer is the environment in which we are to use the the armor. So we're praying as we use the shield of faith. We're praying as we use the sword of the Spirit. We're praying as we put on the helmet of salvation. That prayer is the environment, and we have the armor for that purpose. We have to use it, though. And and my fear is is that there's some here this morning who, because of the absence of prayer in your life, although you know it's important, but by neglect, your heart is filled with anxiety, it's filled with fear, you try to find all sorts of answers, and the reality is it's there because God wants you on your face seeking Him. He wants you pulling the ripcord of the power that He has for you if you will simply come and spend some time alone in His presence. You know, one of the things that I miss about Michigan is the snow. I do. In Holland, we had a over, usually about 100 inches a year. And we lived out in the country, had a long driveway, and it wouldn't be uncommon for it to snow like six or seven inches at night. I wake up in the morning and see this huge, just expanse of, of snow on our driveway. And one of my, like my favorite moments in life was when I taught our twins how to use the snowblower. And what was great about it is, I, I, I remember this moment, I taught them how to use it, taught, showed them how to start it, and they're out there, and the wind is howling. The snow is coming down, the long driveways in front of them, and they're out there, and I'm inside looking at them, drinking a cup of coffee, with my wife standing next to me, and I'm watching those boys work their little tails off, and I said to my wife, man, baby, this is living right here. <laughs> they loved using that snowblower, Right? Because the power could throw the snow. Imagine, though, that I come outside and they're using the snowblower, but they're not, they don't have it turned on. They're pushing the snow and pushing the snow and pushing the snow. They're using like a big shovel and they're using a tool for the purpose that it was never intended to be used like that. And they're pushing harder and harder and harder and the snow is piling up further and further and further. And they say, Dad, the snowblower is not working. And I walk out and say, Look, it's not on. It's turning on, watch, boom, now it works, see? It's designed to throw the snow, and your life was designed to be filled with power, but you don't get that power unless you're on your knees with your Savior. And some of you are pushing so hard and so hard and so hard, and the reality is what needs to happen, you need to pull the ripcord of prayer and say, okay, enough, I can't figure it out, I need to come and seek your face, O oh Lord. It's a lifestyle. Prayer is the way we connect to the ultimate source of power and strength. Secondly, it tells us that it's spirit-controlled. It says praying at all times in the spirit. In the spirit. So what does it mean to pray in the spirit? Well, it means first that the Holy Spirit helps our praying. Romans 8 says this. 8.26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought. You ever had it when you're just praying for something? You don't even know what to pray. You ever had it where you're just so discouraged, so just despondent? You just, Lord, I don't even know what to, well the Spirit at that moment helps. He, yeah, here's what you pray. Or, you ever had it, when you knew what you were to pray. God, strike them dead. Strike them. Just strike them right now, right? If you've ever thought that, you're in good company because the disciples said the same thing. They went over to a city, I forget the name of it, they you know, didn't receive Christ and as they're walking away, the disciples, in one of those funnier moments, say, you want us to call down fire from heaven, Lord, and strike them? You know? And in those moments when our prayers are filled with self-desire, it's that the Spirit of God changes our prayers and orders them according to the Father's will. So the Spirit helps us. He teaches us how to pray. He, he helps us in our weakness. And then notice what it, this is what it says, verse 26. The Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So here's the thing. Even if your prayer doesn't fit with the, with the will of God, the Holy Spirit changes it. He directs it. So first it means that the Holy Spirit, Spirit controlled praying means that the Holy Spirit is involved in the process of your prayer, conforming your prayers in accordance to the will of God, helping you in your weakness. But there's something else here. And one of my favorite texts on praying in the Spirit is Jude 20. Will you turn there? Jude's a little book in the book of, just before the, Revela- the book of Revelation. And there's this, this little text that I love. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. ESV says pray in the Holy Spirit. It can also be rendered praying in the Spirit. So you could read it this way. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So all these things, I think, are connected. In other words, the way that you build yourself up in the most holy faith and the way that you keep yourselves in the love of God and the way that you wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ is directly related to praying in the Holy Spirit. Meaning that your prayer life and your intimacy with Christ keeps you in the love of God. doesn't mean that He stops loving you, but it keeps you in close fellowship and harmony with Him. It means that there's a level of intimacy and oneness that's created by praying. And prayer, by definition, creates a closeness to your God. I suspect that there are some here this morning that it's been a long time since you felt really intimate with the Lord in a prayer time. When you were so close to the Father, almost felt as though you could reach out and touch Him. He may feel distant and gone and removed. And part of the reason may be is because your prayer life is like this deep. Jude says, Build yourselves up. Keep yourselves in the love of God. How? By praying in the Holy Spirit. So having Spirit-controlled praying means that the Holy Spirit helps us, that by praying we keep ourselves in the love of God. We're building ourselves up in the Holy Faith. It means that the Holy Spirit is able to direct our prayers. He's able to empower us. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the pastor of Westminster Chapel, who lived from 1899 to 1981, and by the way, preached 365 messages on the book of Romans. That's a series for you. Writes this, The Holy Spirit directs the prayer. He creates the prayer within us. He empowers us to offer it and to pray it. He does this in us. He gives us the petition. He orders our mind. He gives the prayer. He directs it and He empowers it. Well, my question would be, does your prayer life look anything like that? Could you describe your your prayer life as powerful, alive with the presence of the Spirit, sensing His leading? Do do you have those moments when you sense God leading you to pray for someone only to find out that at that very moment they needed you to pray for them? Or God puts someone on on your heart, you begin to pray for them, then you find out there's a burden that they're carrying? If your answer is no, which I fear is the case for a lot of us, then where do you start? Let me give you some things. Praying in the Spirit. Here's where you could start. Number one, confess any level of quenching the Spirit in your life, like sins or neglect of certain things or wrong attitudes. Do you know you can quench the Spirit of God? Like a fire, you, you, you end up decreasing His control in your life. You can quench, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. He's a person, He's not an it. He's a person, and you can grieve Him by your actions, your conducts, your thoughts, what you put into your mind and heart. So first, confess... I've quenched the Spirit of God. Secondly, ask for a fresh filling of the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 It says, don't be drunk with wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, I don't think this means more quantity of the Spirit, but rather it means the qualitative influence of the Spirit of your life. That you would say, oh God, I want you to control my life in fresh and new ways, and I pray for a fresh outpouring of your Spirit. I don't know how all this works. All I know is that when my soul begins to shrink and I sense that I've either quenched the Spirit of God or somehow that my prayer life isn't where it should be, I ask, Lord, fill me, whatever that means, with a fresh filling of Your Spirit. I need Your help. Third, means to pray the Bible. 
If your prayer life is stuck and you don't know how to get out of it, here's what I encourage you to do. Open up to the Psalms and just start. Start with Psalm 1. Read it aloud and pray what you see in the text. When you pray God's Word, His the Bible, you, you pray according to His will, and it helps your heart to know that you're praying the very words of God. So pray the Bible. And the third, or the last, the fourth would be this, pray with others. Of all the things on this list, this is the most important, at least for me, in my life. I can track my prayer vibrancy by the people that I'm praying with. And that's why prayer week is really important for some of you, because you coming and spending a time and giving a lunch hour to the Lord and by the way, you make that commitment, just watch the ways in which the enemy tries to take that time away from you. You will have every excuse in the world not to come. That's why for some of you, though, the events of prayer week aren't just a, a thing for you to do or a program for you to jump in. It, it literally is the way in which you're going to be able to jumpstart your relationship with the Lord in prayer again. Because you need to be around people and let their collective enthusiasm for the Lord buoy your Hardened, shrinking heart. So to pray in the Spirit means that the Spirit controls, He directs. It means that by praying, we come and we say to Christ, I want more of you. So it's a lifestyle of Spirit-controlled, persevering prayer. The next word is perseverance. It says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. So perseverance. He calls us to keep praying. The word keep alert means to not be asleep. It means to stay awake, to, to realize that there's an anticipation of something coming, which is why it wasn't difficult for me to stay awake last night wondering who's going to win this football game at 12 o'clock at night. I never stay up till 12 o'clock at night watching a football game, ever. But I did last night, and I didn't struggle. Although I was deeply disappointed, for the record, um, I didn't struggle staying awake because I wanted to know what the outcome was. There's a desire, and therefore the desire to know what the outcome is creates the urgency to keep awake. And what Paul is saying here is this. Keep alert. Don't fall asleep. Be on guard. Understand that what you are anticipating is worth the effort and the energy. So some of you need to pray this prayer. Lord, would you give me a desire that spending time with you is even important? Because I don't even have the desire. The word perseverance means to continue in something. To, to, to give it care without giving up. To keep at it. To not quit. To keep going even though it's hard and difficult. Remember that tile project I told you about in that kitchen? That thing, I'll tell you what, it's got me over the barrel more than once. Because not only did we have to finish the tile, which was done, but then the plugs didn't match. Okay, so now I have to change out all the electrical plugs in the kitchen. But then once you put tile on, the plugs, the depths don't match, right? So you can't just buy normal plugs. Oh, no. You have to buy little extenders. Okay, so I got the extenders, put the plugs in, and then I had to get these nice pretty plates that go on top of the plugs. And wouldn't you know it, the plates, the screws are like this small, right? And so I'm trying to get that screw in that little hole, and I am leaning on top of the countertop trying to get these things in, and I am sweating, and those screws will not go in that hole. And I I literally worked at that little project for over two hours to get two light plugs in. And I'm persevering, and I'm, I'm like, I'm in my heart, I'm determined to one, not sin. <laughs> Don't know if I did that or not, but the second thing is, I am conquering these plugs, right? And I'm going to persevere, I'm going to not quit, I'm going to not give up, I'm, I'm going to keep trying different ways to be able to get that little screw in that little hole. The word perseverance is just that, that you, you keep trying, you keep at it. That you, you don't give up, you don't quit, you, you keep persevering and you continually preach to your heart that this is worth the effort, that we are called by Jesus to watch and pray. Listen to what Lloyd-Jones says. Keep on it, always, at every time, on every occasion, at all seasons. Not now and again, not simply when we are in trouble, not only when things are going wrong, always, always watching, 
Don't fall asleep. Keep awake. Be attentive. Be vigilant. Never be listless. Rouse yourself. Don't be slack. If you are neglecting prayer, take yourself to task. See what he says? He says, keep on at it. Don't do it by fits and starts. Don't have spasms of praying. Never quit. Never cease praying. Don't treat prayer like you do exercise equipment. That's his point. Oh, he went from preaching to meddling. That's what happened there. Have you noticed all the advertisements for, for equipment? And You're going to buy it. It's going to become basement decorations. That's what's going to happen, right? Perseverance. Never cease praying. There's been times when I've come to the Lord and said, Lord, I don't want to be here, and I'm not even sure it matters anymore. And I want you to help me to believe that this really works. You persevere. And finally, we're to do so for ourselves and also for others. He says we're to do this with all prayer and supplication for the saints. For all the saints. And also, verse 19, for me, specifically, Paul asks for requests. So Paul wants us to pray for all the saints. He wants us to use the spiritual armor that God has given us so that we can stand under the attack of the enemy. But he also wants us to be concerned about other people. He wants us to come on Sundays and have this perspective of how can I minister in prayer to others. Well, How about this as a goal, that you come on Sunday not only wanting to be filled with a sense of the presence of Christ, but also how many people can I find out how I can pray for them this week? A God-honoring Christian soldier is not just concerned about himself or herself. He or she is fully aware that others are battling too, and so he prays for God's empowerment in their life. So what does your prayer life look like? What does your prayer list rather look like? My question is, is your prayer life a mirror of only your concerns and your needs and your problems? And think with me, what could happen if we really started praying for God's empowerment in other people, and we really started taking up other people's burdens as our own, think what could happen if College Park Church would not only be known as a place that declares the Word of God, but also a place that is deeply committed to God-centered, dependent prayer. What could happen if people in the city of Indianapolis would know that this is a place where you can come and be prayed for and be ministered to, a place where people are praying with each other all the time out in the hallway. It's not weird. Hey, what are you doing? Praying in church? Stop that. I mean, that it's part of the culture of the environment. Instead of saying, hey, I'll pray for that, well, how about we stop and pray right now and pray for that? That this is like a safe environment that you can come with lots of burdens and lots of problems and people are going to come and minister to you and pray with you and seek the face of God with you. So Paul's aim in this passage is to call us to a lifestyle of spirit-controlled, persevering prayer for ourselves and others. So let me call you to three things. The first is this. Number one, I want to call you today to turn from independent living. For some of you, the reason that you're here today is because you need to hear this one single thought in this. You are trying to make it on your own, and it's not working. In fact, for some of you, the reason reason that it's not working is because you don't even have a relationship with God in the first place. You have a relationship with Christ, and the first step needs to be for you to confess your sin and come to Him as Lord and Savior. To turn from independent living. You know, God doesn't want to hear your prayers unless you won't first come and acknowledge your sin and say that you need a Savior. You can't pray to a God without an intercessor. You can't pray without Jesus. And therefore your prayers, although you think they're doing something, they're doing nothing unless you first bend the knee and say, I'm a sinner, I need atonement, I can only get it through Christ. That's where it all starts. Second thing is this. I want to call you this morning to repent of prayerlessness. I want you to see that prayerlessness is a sin, beloved. It's a statement that I I can do it on my own. And for you to say, God, enough of me trying to make it on my own. Tired of this can-do-it mentality. I can't, and it's shown up in my prayer life, and I need... I know prayer is important, but my heart's dry, and I'm empty, and I need to turn from prayerlessness. I am saying every day, I don't need you, and I'm saying it by my lack of prayer. And the final piece would be for you to deal a death blow to prayerlessness and to give up a meal 
Gather your family. Pray in a special way with your small groups. Prayer week shouldn't be any different than any other week, but we've got some things along the way throughout this week that we're setting aside as times for you to come. And maybe the most the risky and yet most strategic thing for you to do would be to say, I need to be there because my prayer life needs to change, and it needs to change now. See, at the end of the day, what I want us to be is a church that's strong in the power of His might, by having individuals who have a heart that is cultivated with a lifestyle that's saturated by a spirit-controlled, persevering prayer life. You know, we sang before, hear us from heaven. My hope is that our hearts don't just sing that. We really mean it. Lord, hear us from heaven. Prayerlessness is my declaration of independency from God. Oh Lord, help us today to put off prayerless living. Help us to see the beauty and the power of what it means to have you empowering our lives and empowering our hearts. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would hear us from heaven, that you would touch our generation. This morning, Father, we pray that you would pull us out of prayerless existences. While Chuck is playing through a song here at the end, I just want to open up the altar here this morning. We're not going to sing a song, we're not going to stand. But maybe your step of obedience this morning to say, Lord, I need to repent of prayerlessness would be just to come and kneel right here at the front and just say, Lord, as a first step in slaying the pride that has created this prayerlessness in my life, I come and want to just kneel before you and say, Lord, I want to turn from a prayerless existence. As Chuck plays, we're just going to have a quiet moment of reflection. I'd invite you just to take that step. We'll have counselors up here if you need to have someone pray with you. Or maybe it's just a simple statement to say, Lord, I just want to simply come and say, 2009, by your grace, needs to be different. So if that's your heart, why don't you come?